Well, good morning again, Elk Point Baptist Church, and good morning to anyone joining us online this Easter Sunday. We had a service on Thursday, our Monday Thursday service, and intentionally so, we left under somewhat of a cloud, the cloud of the crucifixion. But this morning, the wait is over. The cloud that we have sat under since Good Friday has given way to the glorious sunshine of the resurrection, this Resurrection Sunday. And we'll try, we'll try it one more time. He is risen. This is such a fun phrase, particularly in Baptist settings where we don't have a whole lot of responsive, handshaking kind of frivolity. But uh, as, we, as we say these words, he is risen and he is risen indeed, we are confessing a great part of what it means to be a believer. The book of Romans tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And we can say it here this morning. And I encourage us to keep saying it all year round. But if we believe it in our heart, then we will be saved. But it's good for us to spend a little bit of time under the cloud of the crucifixion. That we might have moments, and I know in our culture we're probably fairly averse to these moments where we really recognize the depths of our sin and the incredibly high cost that attends it. We like to keep moving on. That's why we're a culture of self-help books and feel-good movies. We don't like to sit and stew on the cost of what we have done, the suffering that it took to remove our sin. But praise God, he doesn't leave us there to live there. It is good to recognize it. But this morning we celebrate the good news of our risen Lord and Savior. It took some time for me to figure out where I was going to go with our service this morning. Do I just continue plugging away through Hebrews 11 as we have been over the last number of weeks to talk about the faith of Enoch? That would be our next one. Do I switch over and preach from one of the gospel accounts? But then I realized something that was staring me in the face as we've been working our way through Hebrews 11, talking about the faith that we're to display as believers. Um, I've had to pussyfoot around and kind of allude to a, another passage that comes immediately afterwards, the first few verses of Hebrews 12 one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews 12, the first three verses this morning. And Hebrews 11, for those of you that haven't been with us over the last number of weeks, is the kind of hall of fame of faith, all of the Old Testament heroes by faith, so-and-so, and all the way through. And all the way as we look in Hebrews 11, it's pointing to and pointing towards something greater. This faith that all of these Old Testament heroes had was a faith in someone greater and someone that was to come. 
And Lord willing, we're going to keep working through our, our Hall of Fame next Sunday. But this Sunday, we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer are we downcast or dejected like the disciples that we talked about on Thursday on the road to Emmaus. They were looking sad, and they said to the veiled Lord Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, now it is the third day since this has happened. They had given up hope. They had even heard that there's the possibility of a resurrection, but they dared not hope that that was true. But then Jesus has risen again. He's appeared to thousands, and for this morning, we celebrate a victorious, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus that we can find written all over the book of Hebrews. So would you look at me, look with me at our passage this morning, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus. That by looking to him, we would find ourselves strengthened and empowered for the work that you have set before us. That we would not grow weary or faint-hearted in our faith, but that we would cling to it day in and day out. That we would confess you day in and day out, no matter what the situation. And that it might be said of us one day, by faith, we lived according to your word. By faith, we trust in you. By your gift, you have brought us to yourself. And Lord, as we spend time in your word, we do ask that you would allow our minds to be keen, our hearts to be undistracted, and our joy to be made complete as we hear of what you have done, and that we might glorify you in all that we say and do and think, and we would leave here rejoicing and praising you, that we would go to our various family dinners and gatherings, and that we would not simply talk at these gatherings of just what has been going on with the family or any of the other mundane things of life, but that all of our our conversations would be colored by the remembrance of the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, this passage is the culmination of that Hall of Fame. And our author is pointing back to these men and women who had displayed the kind of faith that he defined at the beginning of chapter 11 the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
he points back to these and says, in such great company, since we have such great examples, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the idea here is that these men and women listed, they have run their race. They have successfully competed in line with Paul's understanding in 1 Corinthians 9 where he's talking about this race. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I'm no professional athlete, but I do know that no matter what the discipline, whether it's sports or music or theology or the trades or take your pick, we are well motivated by the presence of an expert. If a hockey player knows that Wayne Gretzky is sitting in the stands, if you are a craftsman and you know that there's a master of your craft watching you work, even me, as I get weekly to preach to men who are capable preachers in their own right, I've got Jim, I've got Tim, I've got Roger, I've got Dick, I've got Ed, I've got these preachers that are sitting before me that I get to preach to, and as we preach to people who are experts, as we preach to people who, are, who know what they're doing, as we work in our discipline before people who know what they're doing, we are pushed to perform our very best because we know that they can see what we're doing. It is easy to be seen as a capable welder if you are in a group of people who have never touched a welder. I am one of those people who has never touched a welder. And if you weld in front of me and can make two pieces of metal stick together, I will be impressed because I can't do that. But in the presence of someone who knows what they're doing, who has practiced and has done it, we are forced to strive to do our very best. And... Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about striving with this single-minded zeal for preaching the gospel and for seeing souls won to Christ. But we have this legacy of faith that is left for us by those in Hebrews 11, by all of the men and women throughout Scripture, Paul included, and even by the kind of post-biblical church fathers and martyrs and pastors and faithful believers. This is our pedigree in the faith, as it were, and we are surrounded by these people, both throughout history and here in the church. And as we are surrounded by these people, it is our job to look around and see who we are surrounded by, both here and in history, and in doing so, strive to our very, very best in our faith. 
Those listed in Hebrews 11 demonstrated their faith in a huge variety of different ways. But they did so with the same singular devotion. And such we too must also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. At our Monday Thursday service, I talked about how the disciples had put all of their eggs in one basket. They'd gone all in on Jesus. And at that point, they felt like maybe they had kind of picked the wrong horse because they weren't certain that Jesus had, had risen again. But they'd gone so all in, it was to the point that when Jesus was predicting his passion and his crucifixion, they often either outright refused to believe it or just totally misunderstood and came up with their own way to make it make sense. The disciples walking on the road to the Emmaus after the crucifixion were forlorn, forlorn and hopeless because they had thrown their lot in with Christ without reservation. And in order for us to be counted among the faithful, to live faithful lives that match the calling that we've been given, we must also lay aside every weight and everything that would slow us down in the pursuit of Christ. And I know that I can happily preach this to everyone of every level of faith. If you are a brand new baby Christian, accepted Jesus yesterday, lay aside every weight that would hinder you from Christ. And if you have followed Christ every day of your life since you were little and you are in your 90s, lay aside the weight that would hinder you from following Jesus. Jesus gives all sorts of commands and promises relating to this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 19. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9. This measure of faith is required of us in following Christ. Even the very first member of the human race to exercise true faith, Abel, almost immediately became the faith's first martyr killed for his faith in God. And perhaps so far this message has not felt particularly Easter-like and hopeful because we take a look at this and we go, there, there's no way. But the rubber meets the road here. How can, 
how can you or I ever hope to attain anything close to this manner of faith? This faith displayed by this great cloud of witnesses we're surrounded by, even here in this room. I am no Enoch, taken up and not going to see death. I'm no Moses to defy Pharaoh and call down plagues from the heavens. But the point here is not simply that we look to these others in the faith and wish to be them or wish to emulate exactly the way they patterned their faith. We look to them for an example of their faith. The way in which they looked to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. And this is hard to wrap our minds around because these Old Testament believers never saw Jesus, but they saw the promises of him. They saw the promises of the Messiah, and they placed their faith in God the Father and trusted in him. And as such, God passed over their former sins, and Jesus became their Savior. The truth is, none of us are able to claim this faith as our own. We cannot even claim our next breath or our next heartbeat outside of the will of God. In his address to the Athenian leaders um, and intellectuals at the Areopagus in Athens, Paul said of God, in him we live and move and have our being. And it's true. Only in God do we continue to exist at all. So why should it surprise us that we must depend on him for the kind of faith that is necessary? But even being a gift, God has determined that there is a means by which he will distribute that gift. He gives freely and as he chooses, but he has determined that one of the great motivators of our faith for us is that his people would look to Jesus and that his people would look around and see how their brothers and sisters back in history and today look to Jesus. We look to our Lord with both gratitude as the author and perfecter of our faith and also as our example. For he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How can we hope to attain to the laying aside of every weight and sin? How can we run with endurance the Christian life? And particularly in this incredibly anti-Christian world that we live in, we must look to our Savior daily. We must consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In 1 Peter 2, Peter is talking about submission to authority, and he says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have been called to be prepared for and to endure suffering because our Savior did that very thing. The suffering that he endured physically, mentally, spiritually was enough that if we read of his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane or we read of his passion on the cross, we can almost physically feel the anguish jumping off the pages. Jesus was killed in one of the most brutally painful executions that the world has ever known. But it's not enough that we simply just endure suffering. The Christian life is not about just gritting your teeth and bearing through the pain. Instead, we are commanded to do good. If Abel had just believed in God, that would have been well and good. That's a good thing to do. But we're also told that even the demons believe. By his actions, and by all of their actions throughout this hall of fame of faith, the people of old received their commendations. If your faith is something that you just keep in a closet to bring out when you come to church or at Easter or Christmas, then it is no faith. The life that we live motivated by faith is important. For as James tells us, faith without works is dead. We have a great example of this stretching all the way back to Abel and throughout church history. And with such great examples, we are to lay down everything that would distract us from Christ to the point of laying down friends and family and hobbies and whatever it would that would distract us. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And then, once we have laid these things aside, we are to run. And this isn't just a, a light jog. This is to put our heads down and run. Run headlong after our Savior. When I come home many weekdays, I am greeted by one of the sweetest experiences known to mankind. I walk in my house, and I might have time to get my jacket off. And I usually end up kneeling down near the entry of my home, and they hear my wife call out, Daddy's home! And then I hear it. Yells and screams, and the stampede of tiny little feet. And I can hear my oldest son, David, in particular, trampling my direction. And David runs headlong with absolutely reckless abandon. He barely even stays on his feet, as much kind of falling in my direction as he is running. And they crash into me and welcome me home. And as they run to me, there's not a look kind of left or right wondering what might get in the way. I am sure if Asher crawled in front of David, he would get trampled right along the way. 
My kids' eyes are fixed on me and only me. And their purpose is to race into my arms regardless of what would get in between us. And if I were to step to the side as they ran into my arms, they would crash into the wall behind me because there is no, no plan of stopping. There's an utter trust and there is a, I am going to run headlong to my dad. Even now, talking about it just warms my soul. And with that same abandon, we are both to run to Jesus and run with Jesus into the waiting arms of the Father. And how did Jesus show us to run? He showed us to run with endurance. So where does that leave us this morning on Resurrection Sunday? We've talked a lot about the suffering that Jesus endured, but don't miss that phrase at the end of verse 2. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross and the suffering that Jesus endured was not the end of the story. Jesus was veiled talking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus, but if we hear the rest of Luke's account of the resurrection, the scene starts to become clear. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. If Jesus had done all of the things that he did, living a perfect, sinless life, performing all manner of miracles and healings, if he had spoken all of the words he did, love for God and love for our neighbor, and then he were to have died and stayed dead, then at best he would have simply been what he's recognized as in most other world religions, a great teacher and even a holy prophet. But at worst, he was a lunatic teacher wandering the ancient Near East, spinning lies and claiming to be God and claiming that he would rise again from the grave. But when that tomb was emptied, when Jesus took back up his life, Again, as the Father gave him authority to do, the truth of the gospel was sealed in miraculous fashion. In Matthew 9, some people bring their friend, a paralytic, to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. My question to you this morning is, which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven or to raise from a sealed grave after a brutal execution by some of the most effective killers in history while being witnessed as being alive again by thousands. Just as Jesus proved his point with the Pharisees, proving that he had the power to forgive sins, he proves to us that he has the power to accomplish all that he has promised. I have proven to my children that when they run to me, I am going to stay there and catch them when they jump in my direction. They're not worried that I'm going to dodge and let them fall. So when David runs to me and he is just basically falling in my direction, barely keeping on his feet, he is not worried that I'm going to move because he knows he can trust me and he, I have demonstrated that he can trust me. Our Savior has demonstrated that we can trust him. Our Savior has done what he had promised. Jesus is no lunatic, nor is he a liar. He is the Son of God himself who has existed from all eternity. He is the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He is the one who lived a perfect, sinless life, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
The cross was not the end of his story. Because of his humble obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is who we look to as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Other translations call him the author and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is a gift. It's a gift straight from Jesus. And as we gather this morning, that is who we worship. And it is that joy that we celebrate. We don't worship another man, a man that has been in the grave and died and is long gone. We worship a risen Savior, the God-man who, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and who reigns there today. Belief in those truths and allegiance to that Lord is what what is required of us in order that we might be saved. We all are very aware of our own sin, whether we pretend not to be or not. We might put on a good show and seem like we have it all together, but we know what it is that has infiltrated our heart and that we have to do battle with day in and day out. We are aware of the fact that we are fighting a losing battle on our own. But if we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. By God's grace, we don't have to spend the rest of our lives fretting about it. We day in and day out, wake in the morning, we thank God for the breath in our lungs and pray for the strength to do what we have to do in that day and we pursue Christ. In whatever situation he places you in, we pursue Christ and we are aware that he has done the hard work. He has shed his blood, his body was broken, that our relationship with God might be made right. I pray, brothers and sisters, that you have the assurance and the conviction in these things, that you have faith in Christ Jesus as your only hope of salvation, for he is the only way, and he is the only truth, and he is the only path to life. And if we do have that faith, then Easter and Christmas won't be the only time we see each other in the fellowship of the church. If we have faith, then we will intentionally gather with the brothers and sisters that God has given us and encourage one another in the faith. And then we will lay aside every weight that clings so closely, every sin that threatens to trip us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. All to the glory of God and for the good of his people. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples that we are given throughout Scripture and in our own lives of a childlike faith, a faith that trusts you implicitly and without any reservation, that we actually might believe that you will do what you've said you will do. Lord, we pray that when we struggle to believe, when we struggle to wrap our minds around that you might do what you have claimed you will do, we pray that we would have our eyes turned towards Jesus. And that as Jesus has proven that he has the authority to do what he claimed to do by taking up his life again and rising and reigning at your side, that we might be encouraged in our faith and that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us, whatever that might be. Lord, you've given us each different situation. Some of us have enjoyed a life that has been mercifully free of major conflict. And some of us feel like every day is a major conflict. But Lord, your power is sufficient. Your gospel is sufficient. For it is the good news that no matter what we experience here in this life, if we have trusted in Christ, that we have an eternity with you. Lord, we pray as we close this Easter Sunday that the focus and the remembrance of what your Son has done for us on the cross and in rising again, that it would not be forgotten and left here, but that it would be carried with us every day of the week throughout the year. And Lord, that we might be examples of faith to each other, to our families, and to those who do not yet know you. Lord, we thank you for these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name.